The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. What is today? Sorry? Oh, I was going to say Sunday. <laughs> no, it's Mother's Day, you're right. This is why I think actually there's not such a, a large number of people here today. I thought maybe that's because it's Mother's Day, because people will want to celebrate uh, Mother's Day, usually with a lunch, isn't it? Taking, taking, not asking mum to do the lunch, <laughs> hopefully not. <laughs> Either they'll bring the food or they'll go to a restaurant, something like that. And some people actually started last night to avoid the crush, <laughs> which is a good idea. So I thought, well, maybe it's a good thing to talk about Mother's Day. I was in a bit of a debate because I thought, well, Mother's Day, yes. Or I had a question during the week, which was great, which was about identity. And I thought, wow, that's great. But then um, uh, I heard uh, one of the people who's staying in the monastery, she's an elderly Sri Lankan woman, uh, she's 83, so that's quite elderly, and she was uh, helped very much with the revival of the Bhikkhuni order in, this is fully ordained nuns, in Sri Lanka. And uh, she now lives here in Australia, and she's living at the monastery. But she recently, last a few days ago, went into, a, into the nearby town of Trentham, and when she was there, there was one of the school kids from Trentham saw her and wished her a happy Mother's Day. And I heard it was very touching the way this little girl said happy Mother's Day to her. And I thought, well, wow, I should really talk about Mother's Day. Do you think Mother's Day is important in the Buddha's teaching? <laughs> well, we'll find out anyway. This <laughs> is interesting. So I thought this is quite an interesting, it's an interesting subject because our parents are always an interesting subject, an important subject in our lives because they have featured so much in our lives. They've made so much of an impression on us, you know, so, and a lot of who we are actually comes from our parents which is one of the things I'll uh, talk about later, that this is a very important reason why, you know, we, it's very important to remember our parents, especially our mother on Mother's Day. And it's good to remember them, whether they're living or not, because my mother isn't living, and uh, I'm sure many of you, your mother isn't living either. But to remember them is a very important part of of. Mother's Day, remembering our mothers. Hopefully, we remember them on other days too. <laughs> I wouldn't like to think that we only remember them when we're reminded, you know, with a Mother's Day. Because I think Mother's Day is only a relatively recent phenomenon, isn't it? I don't know how long Mother's Day has been going. I should have checked that up. But of course, you know, when we remember somebody, uh, whether they're passed away or that we're actually living but we're not with them, it brings them to our mind and brings them, uh, it's, it means they're alive in our minds. And so this is actually a very good, very important aspect of, you know, of uh, remembering our mothers, of uh, remembering the, the things that they did for us and to bring up a sense of respect and thankfulness for what they did. So it's, I mean, the contribution our mothers made in our life is huge, isn't it? <laughs> Without our mothers, we wouldn't be here. Uh, of course, we need our fathers too. 
And not only that, I know many parents, they sacrifice so much for their children, you know, whether it's their education or just to bring them up, just to have enough to eat, enough to, uh, enough clothes to wear, and all these things. So it's, they are a very important aspect of our lives. We, as I say, we wouldn't be here without them. So that's, and it reminds me of a story from Ajahn Jayasaro. You've probably heard this story before. Maybe from Ajahn Jayasara. And this is about when he was uh, a young man, I think only about 18 or 19, and he traveled overland from Britain uh, to India. He had a great uh, desire to go to India, you know, to live in a cave. And uh, so he was traveling overland with, without very much money at all. And often he, you know, would go without food and he was getting, his clothes were very shabby and worn out. And he got to Tehran and he was walking down a street in Tehran and this woman saw him looking like a, a vagabond, you know, looking like he hadn't eaten and his clothes were all, his hair was all, um, you know, uh, dirty and, you know, clothes uh, uh, torn and uh, worn and so forth. And she took him by the hand and took him to her place. She went, and he didn't know what was going to go on. So he went up. Very trusting, really, isn't it? But she must have looked quite maternal, um, but I think quite stern from what his account is. Took her up, took him up to her apartment, and then sat him down, and then gave him all this food to eat. And then she got her son to take him to the bathroom so he could wash. And uh, so he had a wash and, and all this sort of thing. I think she even gave him some new clothes. And uh, then, after that, her son took him down to the street again, and he went off. And he was so amazed. He thought, incredible, you know, that somebody, he didn't know her at all, would do this, you know. And, of course, it's what a mother, a mother, you know, (laughs) would do very much, actually. But then he realized, he thought, my goodness, my my mother and father did this every day, not just once. (laughs) But of course, when I think it's very remarkable, quite a remarkable story, because this person didn't know that uh, Ajahn Jayasaro, or Shane, Sean, Sean as he was then, I think. And so this was quite amazing. But really, our parents do so much that we take for granted, actually. We, we think, well, you know, that's just normal. But of course, you know, for human beings to survive, is we need our parents, actually. I, I don't know what age we could possibly, you know, exist on our own. Maybe three or four at the, at the earliest, probably. Maybe five years old. So as a species, our mother and father are vital. <laughs> so it's very important. And uh, what Ajahn Jayasara reflected, he thought, well, you know, my thinking had been really shallow. I never really appreciated what my mother and father did, just every day, not just once, you know, three three times a, a day, having meals and the food, the clothing, all those things. So this is something that uh, parents and uh, mothers particularly do, and it's part of their conditioning. And it's a good aspect of their conditioning. Otherwise, the species couldn't die out quite quickly, couldn't it, if we didn't have this mothering instinct, fathering instinct. So what did the Buddha say about mothers? He, he more often spoke about parents. But I like this this quote. I was trying to find the Pali, but I couldn't get it. It was, uh, 
Parents are of, are of great help to their children. They bring them up, feed them, and show them the world. And it's so practical, isn't it? But there's a lot more to it. Obviously, you know, that, uh, that uh, the Buddha uh, goes into, actually. And so one could ask, well, why are, because you, you were thinking, mothers, uh, what is a mother, what is uh, the subject of mothers have to do with Buddhism? But, uh, and is it really important? And you probably would think, well, not really. But when we look at the Buddhist teaching, it's quite interesting. Under right view or right understanding, this is samaditi, it mentions, among other things, of course it mentions giving, dhana, um, and it mentions uh, kamma, karma, you know, our actions of body, speech, and mind. And it, then it mentions parents. There are parents. And then it goes on to a rebirth, that there is rebirth, and there are spontaneously born beings. These are like devas, but also I think hell beings too, probably, actually. And that there are those that have awakened to the truth by direct experience, awakened ones. Um, and so the fact that the Buddha mentions in right view parents means this is something that's very important, a very important subject. Of course, the deeper aspect of right view, what's the deeper aspect of right view? Non-self is, that's for sure. But it's usually, they say, the Four Noble Truths, the Four Noble Truths. But it's, there's so much, and most of the Buddha's teaching comes into, into right view, actually. So this is... And the, the important thing with right view is that it gives us direction in life. It gives us an idea of reality. Because we all have our own ideas of reality. But the Buddha is giving us the picture from an enlightened person's position. And so this is a reality without all the biases of liking, disliking, and all the defilements. So... What is so important about a mother or a father? Apart from the fact we wouldn't be here without them. <laughs> That's pretty important, I think. But it's a, obviously, when the Buddha says it's part of a right view, it's a special relationship, isn't it? It's a very important relationship. And usually, often we say these days in, in Buddhist circles, we say, oh, it's a karmic relationship. You even hear that, I think, in non-Buddhist circles, you know, when people get together, you know, they meet somebody they like. They say, oh, it's a karmic connection. <laughs> so there is, there is some sort of connection between ourselves and our parents, usually from the past. And uh, the interesting thing is that the mechanism, of course, that leads us to be reborn, what do you think that is? Sorry? Craving, yeah, desiring or wanting, craving. We want to be reborn. It's a very strong desire in human beings to exist, to continue to exist, to come to a life. And so, yes, we want to be reborn. So it's very much uh, a process where we're attracted to our parents uh, for taking rebirth. I think sometimes... Uh, it's like, uh, also, it's like when people meet each other and they're attracted. Sometimes it can be a good thing. <laughs> Sometimes it's not so good. There is an attraction there, but you can never quite tell whether it's going to be positive or a negative. And of course, this leads to rebirth. That's the, that's the important thing. Our birth is not just, this, not the first time we've been born. It's, it's a process that's been going on and on. And we bring to this life all these different 
uh, uh, capabilities, habits, and so on. And you see children that are, built, are born with amazing abilities, you know, child geniuses, we call them. You know, they, they can play musical instruments or do mathematics, all that sort of thing. So in the, in the West, uh, there, there is a difference, I think, between the way people in the uh, East, in Asia, look at parents and the way we look at parents in the West. I think that can, we can see that, actually. And a lot of that comes from the fact that often in the West we think, you know, when a child is born, they just come like a, uh, like a new tablet or a new, <laughs> a new iPad. You know, it's just blank, ready to, to be written on. And of course, this is, this is not the case, you know, in terms of Buddhism and in terms of right view. They, we come with all the influences in, uh, from our past lives. But, in the West, people think we have this debate about nature or nurture, don't we? Nature is like, oh, it's all in the DNA. <laughs> it's all from the DNA. And nurture is that it's all, all because of the upbringing, the environment they live in, the society they live in. And so what that often leads to in the West, of course, is that parents, uh, we tend to think this is one life only. And so parents cop a lot of blame because if it's only one life, it must be their input that's, <laughs> that's having this bad effect on their children. And we actually hear, and I have heard recently, it was even a Sri Lankan child actually, said, I didn't ask to be born to my parents. <laughs> I thought, my goodness. You know, because in Buddhism we say that's not the case. We, we wanted to be reborn to them. Of course we didn't perhaps know what we're getting into. It can be very positive, usually very positive. But uh, so this is a different way of uh, a reason why parents are looked, I think, looked at differently in the West is because if, if you come from the idea of a one one life only, then parents are ultimately responsible for how their children turn out, and psychology often emphasizes that aspect, and. Uh, <laughs> blames the parents sometimes. But in Buddhist countries, of course, there's a, it's, it's different because we often have, well, most Buddhists would believe in uh, rebirth. So they know their child was reborn before. And one of the differences, too, is that the families often are extended in, in, uh, in Asia, in the East. So you have at least three generations of, you know, uh, grandparents. The, the parents and the children, maybe uncle and auntie even. <laughs> so it's very, uh, it's a different sort of influence from the the, raw, the usual model here in the West, nuclear family, isn't it? And I think uh, one of the big positives with that is that you can get a lot of good role models. Even if your parents aren't good role models, <laughs> some of your relatives will be. So I think that's quite a good, uh, good thing. And also Buddhist parents will often... Um, you know, uh, they realize that they're not totally responsible for how a child turns out. They've bought baggage with them. We've all bought baggage, hopefully good baggage <laughs> with us. And uh, I know for um, many people, particularly uh, Sri Lankans, I know if when their parents get elderly and some of them have to go to, uh, you know, elders' homes or retirement villages, what are they calling them now? They call them aged care uh, homes or residences, not facilities. It sounds awful. <laughs> sounds like something like a factory, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, so uh, 
when they have to go, maybe you know they need a lot of care that the family can't provide. I know many Sri Lankan people feel so uncomfortable, maybe even guilty, about their parents being in a retirement place, and they can't help it. It's just the way the situation is. But one of the major reasons, as I mentioned, that parents are so important, I think this is why the Buddha emphasizes it to in right view, is that they condition the sorts of values, the qualities we develop. Of course, we bring a lot with us as well, but we are very much influenced by our parents. And I see it. I think everybody sees it. When you, when you are thinking of what you'd like to eat, Usually it's something that your parents, your mother, you know, gave you when you were young. So people who are born in Sri Lanka generally will like Sri Lankan food and, and also the way mum cooked it, <laughs> not other people, you know. So this conditioning is a very big part, but it's not only to do with food. It's all the different aspects of our lives. And the Buddha talks about this in uh, uh, one teaching that he gave. And he said that... Uh, Monks, those families dwell with Brahma, where at home the mother and father is, are respected by their children. So Brahma is like the, the, the chief god, as it were, the chief uh, very powerful being. But the more than that, what it's pointing at too is Brahma has these qualities we call the Brahma Viharas. You know, you've heard of them in Buddhism. They're called the four divine abodes or uh, as Ayakima used to call it, the four supreme emotions, which is very nice. And this is loving kindness, compassion, joy with others' success and good qualities, and also uh, equanimity, uh, when equanimity as well. And we learn a lot of these emotions, or we have examples, role models from our parents. And particularly, one of the one of the obvious ones, isn't it, is a mother's love for her child, her only child, we just chanted that, um, and that she will, even as a mother, protects with her life her child, her only child. And this is where we learn some of our emotional responses, where we learn some of our values. It's a very important area for values, because this is one of the my pet subjects, is the fact that uh, our society is in a values va- vacuum. The values that sustain human beings are not necessarily being passed on, not being taught in schools, for instance. But a mother's love is a very good example, that caring. I use that quite a lot as a a way to access metta, loving kindness, and just to bring up this feeling of friendliness, kindness. Um, Caring is a very good way of, of doing that. And we can use this in our meditation, for instance, when we we can think of caring for ourselves like we're our own child and give ourselves this feeling and then we can start radiating it to others like they are our children. So this is is something we learn uh, to a certain extent from our parents, these emotional responses. But more than that, we see see them as role models. They'll either be a good role model or not. So this is an important area where we develop our emotional life. So we get that from our parents as well. But the second thing the Buddha says is that those families dwell with the first teachers where at home the mother and father are respected by their children. And this is very much the area of conditioning. 
you know, where we get these values from, where we get so many of the influences in our lives. Most people think, I'm not a conditioned being, (laughs) but we all are. This is what the Buddha is pointing to. We often think of ourselves as this self, this entity, you know, I'm the body, I'm, I'm the mind, different aspects of the mind, I'm this, I'm that, all these identities. But in actual fact, we are a process flowing, that's going on, flowing on and on, changing. And it doesn't mean that we don't have personalities and characters, characteristics, characters, but that's changeable and it will change over time. So this is um, this is an important aspect of how we're influenced and how we're conditioned. I think many people find that difficult when you say, oh, well, you, you know, we're conditioned. And they think, not me, not me. <laughs> but of course, you know, if you, if you doubt that, you can just see the power of advertising. It really conditions us. I mean, people say, oh, no, I'm choosing. I, 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 I've got free choice. I don't have to, I'm not going to be pushed around by advertising. But then they find they go out and buy these things. You know, so I always say, advertisers wouldn't spend billions and billions of dollars if it didn't work. And of course it does. So the whole point with our human life, our potential as human beings, is to develop good conditioning, have good role models, good examples that we follow, not negative ones, and ones that bring us happiness, fulfillment, lead us to a, a greater understanding of the world and ourselves. They are the role models we should uh, follow. With our conditioning, and always, I always use this for myself actually, is looking at whatever I'm experiencing, is it bringing uh, wholesome states of mind or unwholesome states of mind? And that is a very good uh, guidepost, a guide for me, you know, to, to avoid those things that are, that are bringing up negative reactions. There's plenty. <laughs> you look on the media, on the news, all these things, there's plenty of things that can bring up negative emotions. But I always say, what am I getting out of this? And I realize, I realize it's negative, and I just let it be. Because the Buddha's teaching reminds us, no, don't go that way. It's not going to lead to your happiness, uh, and the happiness of other people for that matter. So our parents teach us things like talking and walking, going to the toilet, don't they? Toilet training's a big one <laughs> for, for children. Can you imagine if you'd have if you saw your past lives and saw that millions and millions of times you've been toilet trained and had to go to kindergarten, or probably it wasn't kindergarten then, and all these things again and again, it would be very interesting, I think. So our parents teach us a lot, you know, just how to get on in the world. But as I say, they are teaching us um, values too. And the Buddha says there are five things that uh, parents, it's a parent's duty. This is what the Buddha mentions in the... It's a famous sutta, the, what do you call it, the advice to Sigala, Sigala Ovada Sutta in the uh, long discourse of the Buddha. It's a famous teaching of the Buddha about uh, lay people's lives. And in that, it says that parents should teach their children by word and example. They, they, the, the things that they should teach them are that they will restrain them from evil. This is not doing good and not doing bad support them in doing good, teach them some skill, 
That's not bad, is it? That's good. Find a suitable partner and in due time hand over the inheritance to them. So that's, that's the, the duties of the parent to the, the children. So this is a very important, important aspect of this process of being a mother and father. This good conditioning, <laughs> very good conditioning, hopefully good conditioning. Um, and so this is uh, an important area because, as I say, how we, con- how we are conditioned is how we'll tend to react. And so if we can uh, have good role models, good inputs that condition us in a good way, and this is what the Buddha's teaching is doing, actually. Ajahn Brahm calls it, brainwashing. <laughs> People go, no, 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 it's not true. I'm not brainwashed. But I thought uh, now might be a good time to uh, have a, a little uh, um, joke. <laughs> and this was uh, about mothers and fathers too. It does highlight some of the dynamics <laughs> in families. And a child asked her mother, how were people born? That's interesting, isn't it? I think all children are sort of sometime or other. So her mother said, oh, Adam and Eve made babies and then the babies became adults and they made babies and so on. So that sounds a bit interesting. And then the child went to her father and asked him the same question. And he said, oh, well, we were monkeys uh, one time and we evolved until we became like we are now. And the child was just amazed. Mother told me something quite different, and Dad told me this. And so she ran back to Mum and said, why did you tell me that? Dad told me this. And she said, oh, no, no, your father was talking about his side of the family. (laughs) It's quite good, isn't it? I think there are dynamics like that that go on. So on Mother's Day, it's a... The most important thing, I suppose, is how do we repay our parents, our mothers in particular, for all that they did for us? And of course, as I mentioned, you know, one of the obvious ones is respecting them, honoring them, um, uh, and also remembering what they, they did for us. Um, so I know often we are very busy, we have very busy lives, so we don't often remember it. And that's why I think we have this, these days, Father's Day, Mother's Day, and all these things, so that we remember their goodness and their kindness, um, and hopefully not so much their failings. Unfortunately, our conditioning is to look at all the things that uh, went, weren't quite right. We can focus on the negatives quite easily, actually. And not only of our parents, our mothers, our fathers, but ourselves too. So, so this is, uh, you know, something to look at the positives that we, we receive from our parents, our mother in particular. And to be grateful for what, uh, what she did, what our fathers did too. And that they gave us life. I know, uh, Ajahn Jayasara says, even if you had the worst parents in the world, and, you know, they were terrible. <laughs> At least they gave you one gift. What was that gift? A life as a human being, yeah. 
And this is an opportunity. And of course, you know, with the, within any relationship, it doesn't have to be with our mother, our father, there's always an aspect of forgiveness too. You know, forget, forgiving the past. You won't necessarily forget it, <laughs> but forgiving the past, knowing that they're not perfect, we're not perfect, and they're not perfect, and being able to do that and move on. Because of course, anybody that hangs on to a grudge, hangs on to resentment, can't forgive, who's burdened, who's getting the uh, feeling, the heaviness of that? The person who feels that. So if we can forgive, that's always a good thing in relationships, not only with our parents. So, and of course, one of the big things to, to repay our parents with is love, isn't it? That's what Mother's Day is about, showing our love and affection for our parents, our mother, and thanks as well. And so that's. So I was going to talk a bit about also what the Buddha said: how we can repay our parents. And this is um, this is a real teaching in Dhamma because it's actually all the qualities that we need <laughs> we need to develop as well on the path to become stream enterers, the first stage of awakening. And this comes from a teaching in the uh, the uh, the numerical discourse in the books of twos. And the Buddha mentions there are two people that one cannot easily repay. And what two are they? Your mother and your father. <laughs> so I'll just, uh, and he's, he gives a most amazing uh, teaching, a most amazing simile. So call it a simile. And uh, the reason the Buddha gives some of these very strong similes is that they're hard to forget. Human beings, we very easily forget things. It's amazing. And you might have heard of mindfulness. I think everybody's heard of mindfulness. <laughs> and one of the aspects of mindfulness is to be able to remember things that happened a long time ago. That's what the Buddha, one of the definitions the Buddha gives. And this is so important that we're able to remember the Buddha's teaching, remember what our parents did for us as well. So this is very... And so with these very strong similes, and I'll, I'll tell you it in a moment, um, they're almost unforgettable. They stick in the mind. You may, for, may forget a lot, but some of these images that the Buddha used um, really stick in the mind. And this is one of them. Because he said, if we, we will not repay our parents if we carry one on, father on one shoulder and mother on the other shoulder for a hundred years. And while they're there for a hundred years, we're massaging them, feeding them, they're going to the toilet on our shoulders. And he said, we will not have repaid them if we, for, if we carry them around for a hundred years. That would not be enough. Can you forget that? <laughs> I think that's pretty amazing, that image. And uh, he even continues, he said, well, even if you made your parents the rulers of the entire world, so they had enormous power, they had enormous wealth, he said, that wouldn't be enough. But I think the one with the parents on the shoulders <laughs> is pretty, pretty amazing. And uh, then he says, why is that? Because they bring us up, feed, feed us, and give, give, show us, guide us, and show us the world. But, he said, if we can establish our parents in uh, four qualities, and these same four qualities apply for us too. <laughs> he said, if our parents uh, do not have faith, if they're not, uh, are not very spiritually inclined, if we can establish them in faith or in confidence, that's uh, 
conviction, sometimes people use that, give them uh, a spiritual dimension to their lives, then that will be helping to repay them, not fully yet. Because when we have this sort of faith, when we have this conviction, this is something that gives us motivation, gives us energy to do things. If we have uh, uh, um, confidence in the Buddha's teaching, then maybe we would start keeping the five precepts. Maybe we'll think dana's worth doing, giving is worth cultivating, meditation is worth doing, developing mindfulness. But if we don't have that sort of faith, that confidence in the Buddhist teaching, why would we do it? We just read about it in the, uh, you know, in the news or in a, a book or something and say, well, that's interesting. So this is a very important quality in our lives. If we can get that, uh, develop that faith. Of course, with the Buddha's teaching, it's not blind faith. It's, it's faith balanced with wisdom, with understanding. And if we can get that, then we'll have the energy to, to bring up energy then we can develop, the Buddha said, mindfulness, and then we can develop one-pointedness of mind. This is when the mind comes together. And when the mind comes together, all the hindrances and negative aspects of the mind drop out temporarily. <laughs> and then we can develop wisdom. We can see things as they truly are. So this faith, if we can develop our, if we can establish our parents in, in faith, um, in a spiritual teaching, particularly Buddhism, but I guess it doesn't have to be, but uh, I think that's a very useful one. And uh, there's a nice story about uh, developing faith when Venerable Sariputta's mother. Do you, have you heard of Venerable Sariputta? He was one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. He was chief in wisdom. And his mother, though from a Brahmin family, his mother did not approve of him being a Buddhist monk. Isn't that modern? <laughs> she did not believe in the Buddha at all, because she was um, she not a didn't have Hinduism then. She was a, a Brahmin, so she believed in Brahma and uh, all that. And so she used to scold him, you know, for for being a Buddhist monk and uh, give him a hard time. This is a chief disciple, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. But then when he was dying, when he had a sickness that was going to be his final sickness, the body was going to pass away, he went home. And when he went home, he was there in, in a room uh, and uh, the, you know, life, life was going, the sickness had developed. And Mahabrahma came to see him. One of the Brahmas, actually, might not have been Mahabrahma, came to see him. There's a huge light in the room. And his mum, his mother, sees this light and comes in and says, what, what, who is that? What was that? And he said, that was Mahabrahma coming to pay respects because I'm going to pass away soon. Then she got faith. <laughs> she got confidence. Only then. It's just about to pass away. Because she realized, oh, he is special. That's the interesting thing, isn't it, for a mother? The child is always their child, no matter, you know. I'm sure Ajahn Brahm's mother is the same, you know. You know, he's always going to be for her Peter, though she's passed away too. And same, same for Venerable Sariputta's mother, until she realized, hang on, he must be very special. And of course he was. And the other things, the four things I mentioned, that's the first one, but it's so important. That one's a very important one, because key... Because once one has a confidence or a conviction, 
then one will think, ah, oh, yes, worth doing, I'll, I'll develop this. So the next one is to establish one's, it says immoral parents in virtue. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? One's immoral parents. Maybe they are amoral, you know, they're not particularly moral. So this is a very, very important thing, but this will, of course, come from faith too. If you've developed faith or confidence, then you think, ah, Five precepts are worth it. You can understand. I oh, know, I think I'll do this, keep these. So to develop them is very important because keeping virtue of whatever type um, is our insurance policy for the next life. You know, this life and the next life. It's not only the next life. Sometimes people think, well, you know, it's all about the next life. But keeping uh, virtue of five precepts, for instance, is about this life because it leads to happiness here and now. I always say to people, if you want to have an interesting life, a complicated life, a life full of drama, break the five precepts. <laughs> You'll soon get it. <laughs> and as, uh, as um, Ajahn Chagro, one of the monks who was Ajahn Brahm's predecessor, used to say, they will never make a teledrama about someone keeping five precepts. <laughs> They never will, because it's just not enough drama. But if you haven't got enough drama in your life, that's the sure way of doing it. And you see it, don't you, in the news, nearly every day now. Sexual misconduct is a big one. Lying is often a big one. Killing is a big one. Um, uh, drugs and alcohol, they're big ones too. Uh, all these things. Stealing, five precepts, other news, <laughs> generally speaking. It's interesting, they now start, they've, uh, I saw it in the ABC News app, they have good news section, because pe people are getting so depressed, I think. <laughs> and also, you can tend to think, everyone's like that. And of course, that's not true. There's so much goodness in the world. There are so many good people. And what we're reading in the news is actually a small percentage. It, it does happen. Uh, but it's not everybody doing this, fortunately. So, And of course... This uh, virtue or morality is the basis for developing the spiritual path, the Noble Eightfold Path. It's Without it, we haven't really begun. Because if we haven't developed virtue, when we sit down to meditate, what will come up is what we've done and what we've said. It will become very clear to us that this, uh, this will disturb the meditation. So it has to be this integrity, this uh, virtue, this morality as a basis for developing uh, the meditation. And also, if we want to find the truth, we need to be truthful, don't we? We have to develop that truthfulness, that honesty, not only in terms of what we say to other people, to ourselves as well. So this is very, the five precepts, uh, morality, virtue, is the basis of a happy life here and now, and then also a future life. But also, for the Buddha, it's the uh, necessary foundation to liberation from being born again and again. And that's his, that's his, the big aim. And the third thing, and these are, these are, as I say, these are all things we need to develop, let alone our parents. <laughs> we all need to develop these things. And, and another one, if one establishes one's stingy or mean parents in generosity, that is also some a way we can repay them. 
but we get to right to the end of the fourth is when we actually repay them. So this is also very important in the Buddha's teaching because we know, know when we are generous, when we're kind, it brings happiness to the mind. And this is a quality, it's such an important quality for the whole path. You know, sometimes in the West, people, we feel, well, we just meditate, you know. They don't, we forget about uh, dana, giving, we forget about virtue and so on. But I know for all long-term practitioners in the West, they eventually work back. <laughs> they think, yeah, virtue is important. <laughs> I'm, I'm finding that out when I sit down to meditate. <laughs> and then also that giving, because giving gives us happiness and joy. It, it can really light up the mind. And this is a condition. Happiness is a condition for the mind coming together. Samadhi, we call it. And this is so important. And it's also something we need for the mind, this inner happiness from being generous, being kind, in whatever way, whether it is, you know, just helping somebody we see who needs help, somebody who's had an accident. It's wonderful to see. I saw a news item the other day. person was... Uh, um, cycling along Lake Burley Griffin in Canberra and a child, right in front of him this child on a scooter went straight into the lake and this person just jumped off their bike, threw off their backpack and dived into the, the lake and rescued the child actually, but it wasn't so deep so he, I think he might have hurt himself when he dived in but that's an amazing, that's a wonderful thing to do, you know, and that is like this dana thinking of others and doing these things, you know, give, saving, uh, potentially saving this child's life. I think it was two or three years old, something like that. So this is, uh, so giving and generosity, it's not just food and other requisites for monks and nuns. It's what we do all day, actually. People are, are giving, sharing, doing dana for the family, to people they work with. When we were being kind to people, you know, giving them, listening to them, um, being there for them. Lots of different things that we can do that are actually part of dana as well. And as I say, the, the benefit of that is we will get happy happiness from it. We'll feel good about ourselves that we've done these things. And of course, it leads to happiness here and now, and of course it leads to good results in a future life. So that uh, wherever we're reborn, if we do a lot of dana, uh, I say dana uh, or giving in this life is like quality control in a future life. <laughs> we'll have good quality. But as I mentioned, some people, uh, some beings will take uh, in this life, you see lots of animals in Australia, they're looked after so well. And when I see that, you know, dogs and cats, and they have their heated heated basket or, you know, they have special food. I know some friend of mine, he actually cooks for the, for the dog. <laughs> and he's always thinking of what to cook for the dog. <laughs> I think more, than, more about what the dog needs than he does, actually. So, so these, I say, these beings, actually, they did a lot of dana in their past lives. <laughs> but their sealer may not have been as good because <laughs> they got born as animals. And of course, they, that's number three. But the fourth one is to encourage, settle, and establish our ignorant parents in wisdom. <laughs> Isn't that funny term, ignorant parents? They won't think of that. And uh, of course, this is 
giving them an understanding of the Buddha's teaching as particularly or any spiritual teaching that has a wisdom aspect to it. And of course this is right view in particular, like I, I spoke about right view at the beginning, about the fact there is dana, there is a result to our actions of body, speech and mind, and there is life after this. That's a very important one for the, the West, because <laughs> a lot of people don't believe that actually, they think this is it one life only, and that there are those that have actually from the direct, ex- direct experience understood uh, reality, the nature of life, and can teach or can be examples. So this is what we can develop, this wisdom, uh, uh, help to encourage our, our uh, parents, our mother or our father, to develop wisdom, understanding. Because wisdom is what makes the big difference in life. When we understand something, there's so many situations in our lives. When we really understand what's going on, you think, oh, oh, and, and it takes away a lot of the anger, the frustration, you know, and there's that famous story I've, I've told many times, Ajahn Brahm uses, of the man who goes to the market, his wife asked him to go and buy some eggs from the market, goes to the market, and he's abused by this young man who is just just completely saying awful things to him. And he gets really upset and he doesn't even buy the eggs. <laughs> he comes home and he tells his wife what happened. She says, oh, oh, yes, he, he had a severe head injury when he was young. He was in a car accident or something. And he's he's been like that since that time. And then the husband, oh, right. And so he goes back to the market and there's a, the boy's there carrying on, he just goes and buys the eggs and then comes home. Because he's understood what what the situation is. And I know for myself, living in Sri Lanka, often with the language I understand, uh, some of similar, but there can be misunderstandings too. And so when I understand, I go, oh, that's what it was about, really. <laughs> it changes everything. When we understand a situation, it changes everything. And so if we can help somebody see things in a more wise way that will really help them with their lives. And if we can do establish our parents in those four things, in uh, faith or a conviction, uh, in morality, uh, in generosity, and in wisdom, then the Buddha says, now you've repaid your parents, in more than repaid your parents. And I think we've more than repaid anybody if we can encourage them in those qualities because it will lead to their happiness and well-being for a very, very long time. So that's how the Buddha says we can actually repay our parents. But I wouldn't suggest going out for a Mother's Day lunch and then <laughs> giving a, a teaching on the, from, the Buddha's, <laughs> from the Buddha. I don't think they will appreciate it, actually. So it's time and place. And what's the best teaching in our lives, actually? What's the best teaching? Is it true for me? True for everyone, I think. Example. It's not the words. I mean, people can say in words. Lots of people can tell you all the Buddha's teaching, you know, from an academic point of view. But if they haven't really um, experienced them to some degree, developed them to some degree, who's going to be impressed by it? Who's going to want to develop that quality? We basically develop qualities because we're impressed by an example, by a role model. And this is, of course, essence of the Buddha's path. There's a spiritual friend, 
a spiritual friend or uh, someone that really gives us a model of what we can do, what we can develop, these good qualities. And as I say, you know, a person that uh, has got a lot of faith is really quite a good role model for us for developing faith. So like that uh, woman that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk at the monastery, I see she's got oodles of faith. And when she gives, she loves to, to cook for the nuns and the monks. and Just so much joy. So there we are, there's faith and there is this happiness from giving. And so she's, she's definitely giving a very, uh, uh, like a role model for me. I see it. There's so many role models in our lives, people with good qualities we can learn so much from. But I was just going to finish with another story that um, I think is quite interesting, actually, from the Dhammapada. And this is about um, this woman who had many children. So, and this is very topical because this is uh, quite modern in a way. It's called, her name was, uh, they call her Bahu Putika, which, which means many children. Bahu Putika, many children. And, uh, and it shows that not all children at the time of the Buddha were uh, respectful and, uh, you know, looked up to their parents, looked after their parents. Not all of them did. And this was in uh, the city that the Buddha spent most of his life, in Savati. And there was a couple, and they got married, and they had lots of children, had lots of children. Then the father died, the husband died. And so the children said, and the children had grown up, and they had their own families. And they said, well, Mum, give us our inheritance. We'll look after you. And she believed them. <laughs> she believed them. So she gave them, uh, gave all the, uh, the inheritance, all the money that she had from uh, when her pa father, her husband passed away, to her children. And she went to the eldest child, stayed with him. And it says the daughter-in-law said to him, oh, she's come as if she's given us two shares, extra shares of the inheritance. And the mother got upset, and obviously the relationship's not good. So she left there and she went to the next child. Fortunately, she had many children. <laughs> but one after another, it was the same story. It didn't make me wonder what mum was like. <laughs> Because there must be some, some, some uh, uh, other side to it, I thought. So she, uh, and she stayed with all their children. But eventually, none of them were very respectful to her or would look after her or, or perhaps put up with her. <laughs> and so she decided, she was probably inspired by the Buddha's teaching and became a bhikkhuni. She became a bhikkhuni. And... And she was, uh, uh, as a bhikkhuni, she must have been, when you think of it, you know, she'd be in her 50s, wouldn't she? 50s or maybe 60s, yeah. 50s earliest probably. And um, she was meditating, and, uh, and then the Dhammapada, it says that the, an image of the Buddha came to her and spoke these words. It says to her, he said, Better it is to live one day seeing the highest truth than to live a hundred years without ever seeing the highest truth. And it said she reflected on that and she became fully enlightened, awakened from that teaching. And that's in the Dhammapada. So it shows you that even at the time of the Buddha, <laughs> some children didn't look after their parents, some children didn't remember what their parents had done for them, didn't respect them. And uh, and so it's something that uh, we can probably relate to uh, these days as well. But 
this woman, this mother, she made a very good move to become a bhikkhuni, to, to pursue her spiritual life. And this was actually something that in ancient India, as you got older, then you'd think of, I think it says she can't, can't work anymore. <laughs> then they developed the spiritual life. That was a model then, wasn't it? And so she did. And she became fully awakened, fully enlightened. So that's a wonderful, um, uh, wonderful thing to do. So I'd just like to conclude by saying this Mother's Day, you know, if we can, we can repay our mothers by just that thank- thankfulness, remembering what they've done and showing respect for for them and what they, often our mothers, had to uh, put up with a lot. <laughs> you know, children, I see it. I think, my goodness, I don't know if you've seen it too. Some children think, oh, my goodness, how do they manage? <laughs> they must be saints. And, of course, you know, being a parent is a training, isn't it, in a lot of um, patience, patient endurance, I think. But also because of a parent's love, they can overlook a lot. You know, other people, when they see these children, may not have the same love, actually, but the parents do. So it's wonderful that they do that for us. So it's a very special day, and it's good that we're reminded. But let's remember, more than just once a year. (laughs) And even if our mothers have passed away, it's good to remember and to be thankful. So I'd like to finish there, and just to ask if there are any comments, questions, or complaints about Mother's Day. Oh, very good. Hello. Hello. Thank you for the talk, Ajahn. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, So it was really wonderful, like a lot of reflection on, especially Mm. my relationship with my mother. But I've got a question that's a bit Mm. veering a bit off, Mm. but it's been something that's been bugging me for mm. a while. Mm. So when I used to do my business, I used to have to stretch the truth a bit. So this is about a fourth precept. Ah, yes, yes, yep. yes. And then now when I'm searching for a job, I'm being advised to stretch the truth a bit Yes. to fit my resume. <laughs> so <laughs> so when, when I'm... When I was young, it was very easy to keep the fourth precept, you know, because when you're in school and all that, you don't really need to deal with worldly things. Yeah, but yeah. When you're in the world, it's, it's very hard to keep the fourth precept. So yes. I'm, I'm wondering, is there a middle path in this? Yes. Or do we go like <laughs> <laughs> really hard at it yeah, and just right. keep precepts and yeah. Yeah, no, that's, thank you for that. That's a good question because... <laughs> You're quite right that it's a, a lot of business and a lot of advertising, you know, um, is not necessarily um, uh, as honest or as truthful as we would like. But I, I always reflect that, um, you know, I've seen it uh, in history in the past, people that are very ethical, even though maybe in the short term they might miss out, people really appreciate someone who's got ethical values because... Why is that? Because I know you can rely on them. If they tell you this, it's actually the case, you know. And this is actually a very important principle of business too, is trust. If you lose trust in a person, you think, well, they said this on the resume, and well, look, <laughs> can't do, or doesn't do it that way, you know, uh, and so forth. 
When trust is broken, it's the same in a relationship, isn't it? It's very hard to repair, and it will damage any business. And you see, when trust is broken, confidence goes. That's when economies start to get shaky. You know, the business gets worried. So this truthfulness is is quite an important quality to to uh, stick to. You know, of course, we we don't we try to avoid hurting people. That's that's always good. But we don't have to tell a deliberate lie. Sometimes we talk about white lies and all this sort of thing, or we have our fingers crossed behind our backs, <laughs> that sort of thing. But uh, we try to do our best. Because with the precepts, of course, who's going to be perfect? No, nobody will. And life is so challenging. Situations change and are different. So we have to adapt. But in the end, this principle of truthfulness, of course, as I mentioned in the talk, is the essential quality of the Dhamma. If we want to develop the Dhamma, develop the Buddha's teaching, it's based on truth. And so that's why when the Buddha you know, gave that teaching to his son, uh, Rahula, um, he said, you know, anybody that can tell a deliberate lie, you know, is turning upside down the spiritual life. He gave lots of examples, actually. You know, he had a, a water vessel, and he'd just come, and his son got the water, had the water out for the Buddha to wash his feet. And the Buddha, you know, he used this as a teaching, and he said, you know, somebody who can tell a deliberate lie is empty of, and you throw the water away, empty of the qualities of a a spiritual person. They've turned upside down, you turned it upside down. They've turned upside down the qualities of a spiritual life. And then when he threw it away, actually said, and they've thrown away the qualities we need for a spiritual life. And he was really heavy-handed. I thought, wow, because his son was only seven years old. But it was very good teaching, very strong teaching to Rahula that, in actual fact, foundation for the spiritual life is truth. If you want to realize the truth, <laughs> you have to be truthful. And there's so much uh, uh, m- uh, mistruth, uh, we call it fake news, all this sort of thing. So much delusion in our society, you see it on the the media, you know, that truthfulness is something we could really treasure these days. There may not be a short-term advantage in it, <laughs> but there's definitely long-term advantage in it. And also, if we are truthful at the end of the day, you know, we feel good about ourselves. We may not have got that job. We may not have... Uh, got that sale, we may not have got that contract, whatever it is, but we can feel good about ourselves. We don't have to, um, you know, sit down to meditate or, or, uh, or even just in a quiet time and that come up to our mind and think, wow, I don't wish I hadn't done that, you know, feel uneasy about it. So always we have to look at the long term too and also the principles in our lives that we really think are important, the values that are important. And this, as I say, this society, unfortunately, has got a values vacuum. That's what I call it, values vacuum. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very, very, um, one of my strong interests is that it should be taught in schools, values, not in a religious setting. Unfortunately, because people think of values as a religious subject, they don't teach it in schools. And so we have a society where where children are growing up without really good values. Whatever their values the parents have, yes, they've got those, uh, hopefully you know, reasonable, but really we need much more input. So I'd say that to you, yeah, to, to stick to the truth as much as possible. You know, we can 
um, yeah, that's 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 important, and it will be valued actually, as I say, in a society where there is so much we don't we can't count on. And I I remember one of the uh, have you heard of the Quakers? The Quakers they were a religious group in seventeenth uh, um, century India, uh, yeah, England, <laughs> India, England, and uh, in the sixteen fifties they started, but they were banned from working in the public service, so they all went into business. And they established things like uh, Cadbury's, Fry's, a lot of other businesses. But they're very ethical people, very straight people today, <laughs> very straight, straightforward. And they did very, very well in business because of that. Because people, you, can rely on this person. What they say, no, that's the case. You know, so that'll be very good, and it'll, it'll be good for your long term as well. You know, people will appreciate it in the long term. So thank you for that question. And that rather long answer. <laughs> Bante, uh, the two discourses you mentioned, uh, one from the Angurtanika, the numerical discourse of Buddha, and the other one was the, from the Dhammapada. Going back to that, mm. the message I say is that so much and so much effort you do to make the uh, in the life in this uh, cycle of birth and rebirth, mm. comfortable and better, is uh, nothing compared to a very little you do to liberate from samsara, the nibbanam paramalsuga. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Uh, most of what we do is actually for for the body, actually, and uh, that's that's uh, we do not so much for the mind, really developing the mind. And uh, in actual fact, our experience of life is and uh, and the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, is coming from the mind. You know, the qualities that we develop in the mind will be the world we see actually out there. So if we have a beautiful mind, the world will look quite good, actually. If we have a mind full of suspicion, anxiety, fear, the world will look pretty much like that. <laughs> so it is in our interest, you know, to develop those qualities of the mind that lead to uh, wisdom, to lead to understanding, and lead... Because the Buddha is very realistic, you know, that not everybody wants to become awakened or enlightened, you know, to put an end to rebirth. Many people, they just want to... A good rebirth, and that's fine. The Buddha was talking about three kinds of happiness, happiness here and now, this life, and happiness in future lives, and also the happiness of liberation, from being reborn, liberation from all the negative qualities in the mind uh, that uh, overcome by wisdom and understanding, and finishing with rebirth. That's, that's what he is aiming at. But he knows, not everybody's ready for that. <laughs> That's fair enough. So thank you for that, Dr. Jayan. That's good. Any other questions? Or I think there's some online, is it? Uh, yes. Oh, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Yes. I'm well. I'm well. Thank That's you. That's good. Yes. Yeah, um, thank you for such a beautiful speech. Bhante. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, especially for this Mother's Day. For oh, Mother's Day. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully there will be another one for Father's Day. Father's Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, my question is, uh, what was the uh, mm. one truth that the Buddha said to the bhikkhuni? One truth that the, the bhikkhu said? Uh, the Buddha uh, oh, about all the story. Right. Yes, the, uh, you're talking about his son, Rahula? No, no. Um, the, 
Uncertainty. Uh, also um, unsatisfactoriness and non-self, you know, not taking things personally. So when they see that, even if it's just uh, uh, one day, even I think you don't even need one day actually, <laughs> much, much less time, <laughs> then uh, one's life is worthwhile, you know. It's better than living for a hundred years, not seeing. Most people live... Some people live for a hundred years and they don't see, don't see this uh, this uh, highest uh, truth, and that's the that's the shame of it. When we live a life and we get to the end of the life and we haven't necessarily understood anything more, I think that would be really um, uh, you know sort of disappointing for us, wouldn't it? To really understand more about life, even if we haven't understood the. The Four Noble Truths, which means we've become enlightened, <laughs> awakened, at least if we've understood our bodies and minds much better. And therefore, you know, when we do understand ourselves, we can actually be much kinder, much more generous, compassionate with other people too. Because you find that uh, compassionate people are usually wise people, and they know there's, n there's not that much difference between themselves and others, really. And so to be kind and compassionate comes from that wisdom, and that's that's very important. So thank you very much for that. That's good. Thank you, Fanti. And we'll see about Father's Day. Yes. Yes. That's right. <laughs> I've got to watch out. I have to make a note. <laughs> Remember Father's Day. Mothers get more remembrance. I think, earlier in the year, too, you see. I think Father's Day is in October? September, is it? Yeah. There we are. Langdon, is there some complaints online? <laughs> No complaints, Ajahn. Yes. Lots of compliments, actually. Oh, that's good. And wishes to see you in Sri Lanka again soon when the gates open, as someone said. Oh, right. I forgot, <laughs> I forgot to say hello to Sri Lanka because I saw that they were. There was an email saying that uh, this talk is being is uh, live streamed, and people in Sri Lanka were being let know that it was at four thirty in the morning there. I thought, wow, that's a bit early. <laughs> um, so there are a Thank few you. questions. Uh, the first one, obviously prompted by the topic of today's talk, are there any differences in teaching Dhamma to the young and to the old? Oh, right. Uh, yes, of course, big difference, you know, because uh, um, when, when people are older, they've got a lot of experience that they can uh, call on and they can reflect on. Um, but when we're young, it's much more bringing them into the moment, involving them, and all that sort of thing. So there is a very big difference in, in teaching young people. It's quite an, quite an art, actually, to be able to teach young people, engage with them. Um, for instance, you know, I, I taught the teens group, 
Um, uh, and that was a great teaching for me because you realize, I remember actually, remind me, I was probably like this when I was a teenager too, how unresponsive teenagers are. It's like a brick wall. It's incredible. If you speak to them, if you speak at them, it's useless. You show them videos, they, they veg out to the videos even. But if you give them some activity, wow. Then we had this activity where they had so many pieces of spaghetti and a few other things, and they had to make the tallest structure. Now, that was a great success. <laughs> so teaching Dhamma to young people is only activity-based, and that activity's got to support some sort of understanding that uh, um, you know, will, will, it will help them understand Dhamma a bit more. Because Dhamma is about life. It's not, it, can be, uh, it can be shown through experience. Because the Buddha says the Dhamma is here and now, isn't it? You know, it's a kalika. It's not, it doesn't take time. And it's in this life. So, uh, no, it's got to be experience-based. Older people, you don't necessarily have to <laughs> give them a bunch of spaghetti and tell them... <laughs> Tell them to make the higher structure. I think that would be quite a different approach. They'd probably say, what is he on about? But that's the difference. Yeah. So I hope that uh, answer, yeah, very, very different. Actually, some people are so gifted at teaching children. It's wonderful. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, this is a very broad question. I don't uh -huh. know if there's a, a brief answer to it, but uh, um, Namaste. I feel that repaying my mother is practicing Buddha's path. And that leads to how to break the chain of cause and effect. How to break? Oh, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? How to break the chain of cause? And, wow, the the way to yes, yes, definitely. You know, repaying our parents, our mothers, are developing wholesome states of mind. That is practicing the path. You know, the Buddha encouraged us to to look after our parents in the best possible way. You know, and obviously very practically, as we, as I mentioned, you know, the five duties of a child to help their parents out when they're sick or ill, you know, when they're old, uh, to look after them. So that's very important. To, to break the chain of cause and effect, of course, is, is what it suggests to me is liberation, liberation, because the only way one can step out of cause and effect, that's the nature of samsara, is cause and effect. This is a conditioning process too. Is uh, become awakened. <laughs> That's the way to break it. Become awakened. So that that is not so easy because the person needs to have abandoned the things that bring us back to being reborn. What th what th uh, things are they? The Buddha mentions them. He says that one is karma, karma, long a m a, tanha, and that is. Uh, uh, the craving or wanting for sense experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching. Believe it or not, we come back for that. I think that's pretty obvious. The foods that we like, the sights, the people that we're attached to, uh, the sounds, the music that we like, all those things draw us back to being reborn. Easy to understand. We want to do it again. <laughs> That's very easy. But the, one of the biggest drives for us, of course, is bawa-tanha. And this is the desire, the wanting, the craving to exist at any cost. <laughs> and that is really strong. And often I think of uh, rebirth, for instance, is like this desire is driving us so fast and the bus is coming past, opportunity for a new life. 
We just grab it. We don't see the destination at all. We just grab the bus, throw ourselves on the bus. And then when we get on the bus, hang on, where's this bus going? Oh, no. <laughs> it's, not, it's not going to the city. It's going wherever it's going. So this is, uh, this is quite often, uh, uh, this is what I think actually happens quite often. This, this desire to be reborn is so strong that we're not uh, fully aware of what we're getting into. <laughs> and then, of course, the Buddha says the last one, this is the most interesting, actually, vibhava tanha, and this is desire to just finish with everything. You know, I've had enough. And old people, this is a very common feeling. You know, if you've, you've got the body breaking down, it's not pleasant. And you see, like I saw an article in the ABC app about a young man, only, uh, I think it started when he was 17, got bone cancer, rare form of bone cancer. And at 20, you know, he um, ended his own life with his parents in the same room, you know, and they respected his wish to end it because so, so painful. But this is something that, you know, this this desire to just to finish with it can be driven by physical pain, like that young man, you know, just 20, and he he uh, killed the body, you could say. He euthanized the body. Of course, in Buddhism, the mind will go on. It can be from physical um, physical cause, but of course, what is driving that wish to euthanize the body, to uh, destroy the body, is the mind. There's often a lot of aversion that goes with it. I don't want this pain. I don't want to go there again. And so this, this is also driving, driving people when they suicide, when they uh, want to uh, uh, take voluntary uh, euthanasia. But the Buddha says, very interesting. It will give rise to rebirth. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Because it's coming from such a strong desire. First of all, there's a lot of um, negative aspects of the mind. You know, there's a lot of aversion to the unpleasant feeling from the body or the mind. And this is driving us towards continued existence. The only way that rebirth can finish is allowing it, understanding the process and allowing that process to cease. Little by little, gradually, gradually, it finishes. But to, to, to try and finish it like that is so much of it's coming from I, me. I want to wipe this out. I don't want any more of this. And the Buddha says, result, you're back here again. <laughs> or back wherever. You don't quite know because that's a negative state of mind. Uh, I, I don't know what sort of rebirth would come from that. So that's, uh, that would be the so short, uh, shortish answer to a long question. So thank you, Langton. So that's good. Yes, it's about uh, 27 minutes past, so it's just one more. If you don't have to answer all the questions. Who can? No, there are a couple more questions, but maybe just, do we can just have time for one more. Yeah, just, just a short. short answer. Yeah, short answer. On your thoughts on how can one encourage generosity in parents who are miserly? They are generous with only their immediate family, but not anyone outside their close circle. Right. Yeah, that's really difficult, isn't it? I think, I think uh, that is a hard one. I think examples can be good, and also it's a cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? Because if, if they see, you know, the benefit is happiness and good relations with other people outside the family, that can be uh, helpful. And of course, a, a view like the Buddhist teaching is is really very helpful because then you'd see, ah, yes. 
if I do good karma, you know, I'm kind, I'm generous, it's going to have results, you know, in the future. So that would reinforce it too. But for somebody like that, you know, for parents like that, role models are the only way, I think. If they can, if the children can be role models, that's one thing, but that's probably not the one, the sort of role models that will cut the ice, as they say. It would be famous people who do things like giving away so much of their wealth or, you know, um, they will, that will influence perhaps those people. Or maybe they'll think, I don't have that much to give away. (laughs) If I had, I might. No, it's not easy because this is, but this is how we repay our parents if we can establish them in generosity. Not easy, no, but uh, yeah. Mm. All right, thank you very much, and thank, thank you all for your patient endurance. <laughs> and now, for those who wish, we can pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Thank you. Oh. Sangha, 